This podcast contains themes of family violence, which may be triggering. If you're listening in Tasmania, where this podcast is made, and you need support now, you can contact the free Family Violence Counselling and Support Service on 1800 608 122. Or you can call the 24-hour National Support Service on 1800 RESPECT. If you're in an emergency, please contact triple zero. This podcast also contains legal information. It is not intended to be legal advice. You will find a list of legal services that you can contact for individual advice in the show notes. I think what people sometimes don't realise is even where the relationship may be one of two or three relationships that they're carrying on or uh, where they don't necessarily live together or there may not be a sexual relationship. They can still be characterised as de facto relationships by the court. How much do you know about what it means to be de facto? Sometimes it's simple, sometimes it can really fit the it's complicated status. And relationships and how they're defined by the court can get complicated, particularly when they break down. Hey, it's Penny Terry here, and this is Rule of Thumb, the podcast where we find out that the legal system might check with your friends or your Facebook page to see if that person you've been hanging out with is a friend or more than a friend. In this episode, we'll get the legal definition of de facto and we'll find out what the courts use to work out who gets what if you split. And that's the stuff that could change your life. Which is something that Jane was well and truly aware of. If you've listened to other episodes, then you've heard bits and pieces of Jane's story already. And the biggest piece of it for Jane is about her house. The house was mine before I met him. He moved into my house. Um, so that's originally why I spoke to uh, sought legal advice, because it was my house. Nobody has a right to take that off me, regardless of how long you've been in a relationship. If it wasn't for me, we wouldn't have had a house to live in. Uh, part of me was scared. The other part of me was really pig-headed and no way are you going to take my house off me. No way. I've worked my entire life for what I've got. It's not much, but it's mine. And you just don't, you just don't do that. <laughs> so, If we go back to that first conversation, what did you learn about how the legal proceedings might play out for you? Um, it's a simple calculation as to who's entitled to what. That's a simple simple calculation. Is however very unjust. Um, for me, I was the one who worked. I was the one who provided everything. He stayed home. I kept him. I was not the woman staying at home being the housewife. You know, depending on how much you contribute, depending on how much they contribute, it's all the fact that it was my house first. That's irrelevant as far as the judge was concerned. He just wanted the maths so that he could work out who was entitled to what. And through that process, we agreed before we got to the end because I had no fight left in me anymore and and didn't have very much support to keep fighting. Um, I just agreed to what he said I needed to pay him to solve the problem because it was such a toxic thing. It was making me sick. It was mentally making me sick having the 
the fact that I might have to pay him or that I might have to sell my house to pay him and by selling my house, I'm out of the property market forever, forever because I wasn't working and I couldn't get the bank to come to the party to pay him. I had to do fundraising to, through Facebook to try and get some money together and then at the very last moment when it looked like I was going to be forced to sell my house and be homeless and have to go back to renting if I was lucky, a friend piped up and said, I'll pay it, I'll give you a job you can pay me back. And that is what saved me. Otherwise, I wouldn't be in my house today. The threat of being homeless, how much did that play on your mind? Oh, my God, it terrified me. I'm 50 years old. I was facing the prospect of having to buy a caravan and live in the caravan on a friend's property with two dogs and two cats. Can you imagine it in the freezing cold winter? terrifying does it feel like the court considers these things or the law no neither neither consider that at all at all the idea of having to work within a system did you need to just sort of let yourself go to that and go, this is the system that I'm dealing with. Oh, very much so. That's why I agreed in the end to just, I don't care what it is. I had reached the point. I just need the judge to tell me what it is I have to do. That's the point it reached for me. I don't care what he says. Just tell me because I don't know what my next move in life is. My whole life was based around the decision of the judge. And that went on for years. How long were your proceedings? Um, Approximately three years. Facing homelessness at 50 because of a separation? I don't know how you're going, but when I first heard Jane's story, I was shocked. Not so much about the property division, but... That uncertainty about what your life is going to look like afterwards. But I was shocked again when Una, a lawyer who we've got to know through this series, told me that she commonly sees cases like Jane's at the Women's Legal Service. An issue that we see on a fairly regular basis is where particularly older women who may... um, have entered a relationship in their later years owning a house. So owning an unencumbered house often or a house with a very small mortgage Um, and they very much consider that to be their home Um, and rightly so. You know, (laughs) they've spent their, their, um, their lives working on this property, paying off the mortgage, maybe raising a family in it and uh, or or might have received the home as part of a a settlement in a previous um, relationship breakdown Um, and then they've entered into a relationship in their later years and you know the one particular case I think of she entered into a relationship after her her children had grown up it wasn't a particularly healthy relationship Um, there was family violence involved a lot of control for whatever reason, and relationships are complicated. She remained 
in that relationship for quite a number of years. On and off, she tried to leave at points um, and returned and finally um, the relationship broke down. There was a family violence order involved. He was compelled to leave the property. At this point, it was soon after this that she came to us because obviously he sought some legal advice and decided that given that they'd been in a de facto relationship, um, that he was going to seek a portion of her property. And I think it's you know fairly well understood that when there's been a relationship for a significant period of time and both parties have made contributions, um, that there is an understanding that it's generally the case that it will be divided or one party will pay the other out for their entitlement so that they can move on. Um, I think in this case and in many other cases where it involves older women who are maybe dependent on a disability support pension or Centrelink, even if it's considered reasonable that they pay the other party you know, even quite a small amount, maybe ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000, it's impossible and it will result in them having to sell that property and with the proceeds try and obviously buy something else. But um, it can be very difficult for someone in that position and it can also affect their ongoing Centrelink entitlement. So it puts them in a very vulnerable position and I think that's something that those women entering those relationships and understandably so, don't think about when they're getting into those relationships. Um, I think the matter I'm thinking about in particular was, I guess, complicated by the fact that there was a lot of argument about what contributions were actually made. On the one hand, it, it is reasonable to suggest that someone who's been in a relationship and made contributions to it, if they're not the owner of the house, um, should have their entitlement um, recognised when they leave the relationship and um, be able to leave the relationship with something. And I'm sure that on the other hand, you also help women get that reimbursement. Absolutely. Even a minimal contribution will often be calculated as a 10 or 20 per cent contribution. Um, and 10 or 20 per cent of a house can still amount to quite a few tens of thousands of dollars. So if that woman who is on a disability support pension or Centrelink um, or, you know, a, a younger single mother who's on a parenting payment, I mean, it, the, their options um, to come up with that money and pay that person out are very limited and it can result in having to sell that house. So maybe what the law is exposing here is a, is a vulnerability. Absolutely. It's a vulnerability and um, I, I don't know how to get around that. I mean, obviously, short of not entering a relationship. Um, this, is, this is it because this is actually real life mm. and this is what's happening and this is what you don't think about. You know, I'm, I'm conscious that there might be sons and daughters listening thinking, that's my mum. And even if she is or isn't in a, in a relationship now, what can she do to protect her assets now? Say that situation does occur. You're shaking your head. 
It's difficult. It's difficult. I guess the most important initial thing is just being aware that um, it can become very complicated, um, and you might it might be worth getting some legal advice. You know, not waiting necessarily until a relationship's broken down, but going and having a chat to someone when you're entering a relationship, or as soon as you start sort of considering or thinking that the relationship might be coming more serious or is ongoing. Um, I mean, the one of the considerations as to whether a de facto relationship exists is the length of the relationship, and and there is a bit of sort of a, a, a mm-hmm. sort of initial benchmark of of two years. So if you're in a relationship that's approaching that two year mark, um, and you've got some questions, I'd suggest calling calling a lawyer, calling us uh, to have a chat and just see what the situation might be or, or what the risks might be and identify whether there's anything that can be done to minimise those risks. Well, that feels a bit hard to take on. And so does the idea that there seems to be a gender issue here. As we've heard already in previous episodes and we'll hear again in those coming up, women are still more financially vulnerable than men as a general rule. The majority of child rearing is still done by women. Women are working less hours. They have less superannuation. Some of the lawyers I spoke with even discussed how many cultures seem to help men set themselves up financially more so than they do women. But I wonder if you're thinking about your own relationship or past relationships or relationships between people that you know and whether or not they'd be considered de facto. Let's go a bit further into the legal definition now with lawyer Lillian. It's really important to know that de facto relationships and what that is as a term is, is also a legal term as well as a colloquial term that we use every day. It's up to the legal decision maker. They'll determine whether on the balance of probabilities, which is another legal test, that that person was in a de facto relationship rather than they weren't. Even though when you think about it and you look at your relationship, you might not have considered yourself a de facto. So there are lots of different criteria to establishing what a de facto relationship is. What, yeah. what, what is the criteria around de facto? Um, there's probably five categories, a financial aspect to the relationship. It's in shared money? Yep, things like that. Um, so an interdependence on each other. That just means relying on one another to support each other. The nature of the household and how you live together. Does that mean sharing sharing rooms, sharing beds? Yeah, that's correct. So another part of that is whether or not there is or there isn't a sexual relationship. So sometimes when you come to a lawyer, they're going to ask those questions, which is a bit awkward, but they're really necessary questions. So it was financial, how the house looks, uh, sexual relationship? Um, Social aspects. So what do other people think of your relationship? Do your friends know you as a boyfriend and girlfriend? How do they work that out? How does the legal system work that out? (laughs) Sometimes they'll ask your friends. They'll require your friends to you know, write a statement, give evidence, that sort of thing. It might be that you were tagged in a photo on Facebook or you've said your relationship on Facebook. So do people not do that, don't change their status on Facebook to avoid issues with this stuff later? Potentially, that could be something that people would do. Yep. 
yeah, I, you know, it can be things like that can be relied on and used in support that you are in a relationship or, you, or de facto relationship and you aren't, yeah. And what's the final one? The commitment. So do you intend to be with this person over a long-term thing? So engagements, that's a non-legal commitment that you are going to be with that person for a longer period of time than you already have been. Now, children can happen even when the commitment isn't there. Does, does children and, come into that? Yeah, children are a big factor as well. So where there are children in it, you're more likely to be considered in a de facto relationship than not. How are you going with this? Are you on top of it? It's pretty eye-opening and I can understand that it would be pretty easy to not think you were in a de facto relationship and then the court says you are. And we often do see clients say, no, I wasn't in a de facto relationship. That's, that's not the way we thought of it. And these are the reasons why. So he's not my boyfriend. She's not my girlfriend. Hmm. Or, you know, I'm married. Mm. So, you know, this, is, this other person is, is just someone I have, you know, a very casual relationship with. Um, and that may be the case. The court may also agree. But but at the end of the day, it really is how the court characterises or is likely to characterise that relationship rather than the person themselves. And when the court is deciding whether a de facto relationship exists, they're looking at a whole range of different things and there's no one of those things on the list that will determine whether it was or wasn't a de facto relationship. It'll be a combination um, and it really is just the more things on that list that you can tick, the more likely the court's going to consider it's a de facto relationship. Um, a really important one, I suppose, when it comes to property divisions is the financial arrangements. Now, just a word of caution. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Please don't take this podcast as your legal advice. This is general information only. And as Hannah, another of the lawyers at the Women's Legal Service, told me, every case is different. And another common thing we see is, you know, they've heard things from friends or acquaintances about what's happened in, you know, that person's parenting matter or property matter or whatever it might be. Um, so they may have these preconceived notions about what's going to happen or the, how the court's going to approach something or this happened in their matter, why can't it happen in mine? I guess the other thing is to just by calling to get advice doesn't mean you have to do anything. No, that's right. And um, I see that quite a lot, that people just aren't sure or they may not even be separated at that stage. It might be something that they're considering and they just want that bit of information about, you know, if they do go down that path and end up separating, what are they looking at in terms of parenting or their property matter or even how a divorce works? How much more power does it give them in the conversations going forward with the other party, as we call them, or their, their, the person they're in the relationship with? It is really helpful. That's the feedback I've seen on the advice line. People just have had you know, no clue about how the system works. So we give that sort of generalist advice on the advice line or um, in an appointment with a client. And then, and, and for some people who are then able to go off and perhaps self-represent or have those conversations with the other party where it's safe to do so, 
they're then empowered to go off and do that because they have that information because there is that element in in some relationships or some matters where the other party tells someone, you know, you're not entitled to this, you're not getting half my super is um, a common thing. What, what are the rules? What do we need to know about super? So there's no, I guess, hard and fast rule, but I guess what should be known is that superannuation is considered as property and can be split, essentially. So the court can make an order, however it, it can uh, differ on how it's treated, whether it forms part of the overall property pool or whether it's treated as a superannuation property pool and then the non-superannuation property pool. You gave a look like, oh, it's complicated. <laughs> it is. There's, I guess there's no sort of hard and fast rules as to, to the approach the court can take. The idea of super and women overall having much less super than men do for all sorts of different life circumstances, uh, how much do you see this as being a big problem for women? It is, it is a big problem. It's something that I commonly see um, in a lot of our property matters. The other party, so typically a male other party, will have, you know, 100,000 plus in super. And our clients will have very little because they have taken on that role of staying home, taking care of the children and and doing their household chores. So it's something that that has been quite common and I think will continue to be um, because in a lot of relationships, that's just the way, I guess, people decide to organise the, re- the responsibilities. Can you remember at the start of this episode, Jane talked about maths, a calculation about contributions. Let's get the lowdown on that from Una. So when the court's looking at how to divide property when a relationship ends... They're looking at many different factors. The main consideration is the contributions that each party made to that relationship. Um, And they're the financial contributions, things like mortgage, groceries, bills, all of that sort of thing. Um, And then non-financial contributions, cooking, cleaning, looking after children, um, DIY renovations, um, gardening, you know, all that sort of thing. They're non-financial contributions. So the court sort of, without doing any sort of micro accounting, will sort of weigh up the party's contributions over the years or however long the relationship was, and then sort of settle upon a bit of a percentage division that's appropriate and then take into consideration anything that might warrant a bit of an adjustment in one party's favour or the other based on sort of what's called future need factors. So if there's significant health issues, the ongoing care of children is a big one where one party comes out of the relationship with a much lower earning capacity. They're all things that might warrant a bit of an adjustment in their favour. So I guess where relationships been of a significantly long period of time um, and both parties have made significant contributions then yeah I mean a 50-50 might be (laughs) the situation you're looking at it's certainly not a, a given because there's just so many different factors that play into every relationship. Anyone else doing the maths about their own household contributions right now? It's hard not to but maybe it's good to think about this stuff 
to be prepared. Could you prove it? In the interviews I did, some people thought that although it's getting better, they had seen times where the court seemed to give more weight to financial contributions over domestic contributions, perhaps highlighting another example of how the application of the law uses the same cultural norms that we see in society and impacts women differently to men. So, what does Jane recommend you could do now? Unfortunately, I think, like for people in my sort of situation, if you got involved with somebody again, you need to have a legal agreement between the two of you. As and that's that's really sad. That's really sad. But um, you have to protect at the end of the day what you've worked for all your entire life. Um, you know, it's all I've got. It's falling down around me. The roof's leaking, but it's mine. Nobody can tell me what to do with it. It's mine. That's what it, I can't put it into words. It, it's mine. And while I leave you to find the words in your own mind, a reminder that in this episode we've talked about property and de facto. On our next, we stay on relationships and divisions, but it's about parenting matters and children. And it's going to get tough. So my experience of women post-separation, every time the children go and visit Dad, they're really anxious, they're really distressed. This can go on for years. Just recently, I've been working with a client and her child was ringing her from the bedroom in his dad's home every night in tears because he was so anxious and and sad there, but he had to go because those are the rules. Yeah, there will be some uncomfortable stuff in our next episode. Again, a reminder to check out our show notes for contact details to get your own individual legal advice and also for the links to connect up with Family Violence Support Services. My name is Penny Terry and you've been listening to Rule of Thumb, a podcast for the Women's Legal Service Tasmania.